0: Welcome to ReachMD. This medical industry feature titled The Quest to Better Understand Axial Psoriatic Arthritis is sponsored by Novartis Medical Affairs.
1: Axial psoriatic arthritis, or AXPSA, is a challenging clinical entity to characterize, with a prevalence ranging anywhere between 12.5% and 78% of psoriatic arthritis, or PSA, patients because of varied definitions and inclusion criteria. This leads clinicians to ask, how can we accurately diagnose something if it's not commonly understood? And is PSA distinct enough from coexisting ankylosing spondylitis, or AS, and psoriasis to stand on its own? Well, today, we'll explore these and other questions on the path toward a clearer definition of PSA. This is ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Joining me is Dr. Alexis Ogde, Associate Professor of Medicine and Epidemiology at the University of Pennsylvania. This presentation is sponsored by Novartis Medical Affairs, and all speakers have been compensated for their time. Dr. Agdi, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Great to have you with us. So before we dive in, can you give us a brief overview of ACTS, PSA as you understand it in the context of the overall disease and help shed some light on its variable burden on patients?
0: Great. So psoriatic arthritis by itself is an inflammatory chronic musculoskeletal condition um, that is associated with multiple different clinical features. These include things like peripheral inflammatory arthritis, but also emphysitis or inflammation where a tendon, ligament, or joint capsule inserts onto the bone, and dactylitis or swelling of an entire digit like a sausage. But beyond these characteristics, as well as skin and nail disease, psoriasis and and psoriatic nail disease, um, patients could also have axial spondyloarthritis. Um, axial disease or axial PSA is, is uh, occurs in about 12 to 78% of patients. So let's say somewhere around the 20 to 30% range. Um, the, the variation is wide because there's actually no standard definition for what axial PSA is. So if you're kind of talking about the X-ray damage uh, associated with uh, axial PSA, it's probably more around that 12% range. Or if you're talking about just back pain symptoms, it's more in that 70 to 75% range. Um back pain in, in PSA is very common. So there's a lot to learn still about how to define axial PSA, um, but we do know that it is it does need to be treated and needs to be recognized. So that's what we're going to be talking about today is how do you recognize it and how do you define it? how How should we be th- thinking about this in clinical
1: practice? And Dr. Abdi, I understand that substantial efforts have been made to help describe this axial involvement in PSA, but this kind of revolves around meeting certain criteria, such as the ACEs criteria. What can you tell us about that?
0: Right. So right now, the main way we define axial spondyloarthritis is by using the ASAS criteria. So the ASAS criteria are um, basically the patient has to have inflammatory back pain lasting more than three months. Uh, they have to be under the age of 45 when the back pain first starts. And then they can meet the criteria one of two ways. One is they have an uh, imaging feature of spondyloarthritis, so sacroiliitis on an x-ray, for example. And then they meet one additional SPA criteria. And then the alternative way of meeting the criteria is to have HLA-B27 positivity and then meeting two of the spinal arthritis criteria. So that's currently how axial spinal arthritis is defined, but it turns out that kind of breaks down a little bit in psoriatic arthritis. Many people with psoriatic arthritis meet those criteria, and it's not quite clear if that's really the best way to define axial PSA. So um, there are efforts ongoing to better define criteria that would be used to define axial PSA.
1: And and of course... With that understanding of there being no real consensus definition of axPSA, psa maybe we can dive into other ways in which we can investigate and find some clarity. Are there any genetic foundations helping shed more light on AX-PSA?
0: Well, first of all, HLA-B27 is probably the gene that we all know best associated with axial arthritis in general. And it turns out that if you have psoriatic arthritis and a positive HLA-B27, that patient is much more likely to have axial PSA as well. Um, if you have hlab27 and you have psa you're also more likely to have a more aggressive course of your disease like more erosions um, and also more likely to have bilateral versus unilateral sacroiliitis for example so hla b 27 does have some meaning in psoriatic arthritis there may be other genes as well some that we don't that we know less about um, one of these genes is hlabo 8 so we're still learning about that but it does seem to be associated
1: with the axial psa as well and what about the clinical presentation for Axe PSA, Dr. Ogdi? Are there any trends or patterns that you think we should keep in mind?
0: Well, one thing is that in general, our, our PSA patients are going to be older than our axial spinal arthritis patients. And that is also true of patients with axial PSA. So axial PSA, Tends to have kind of the they're they're slightly older than that typical ax spa patient that we might see. Additionally, there's going to be more of an equi- equigender, so male to female ratio that is closer to one to one, as it is in PSA in general. Um, in ax spa, there's still more of a male predominant disease, although we're learning over time that there are that that is kind of equalizing a little bit more than we used to think it was much more male predominant. Um, additionally, uh, patients with axial PSA may have earlier onset PSA in general. Um, Again, we need more studies to kind of fully sort that out, but at least some studies have suggested that. Now, one of the chief ways we look for axial PSA is um, by asking our patient with psoriatic arthritis, arthritis in front of us about whether or not they have back pain. And then naturally, the next few questions that follow are those of the inflammatory back pain criteria. So over the last couple of years at both ACR and ULAR, there's been a number of studies presented that have suggested that inflammatory back pain criteria don't fit so well in psoriasis patients or uveitis patients. And I think that's also been found to be true in psoriatic arthritis. In fact, just from my own clinical experience, I'll see a patient with psoriatic arthritis who's reporting back pain, and I'll think that sounds completely like mechanical back pain. It doesn't sound like inflammatory back pain at all. And then what you find is that they actually have sacroiliitis. So I think that underscores how important it is to not rely too heavily on inflammatory back pain criteria while they may be helpful. They're not the end-all, be-all, particularly in PSA. Um, It's also important to note that a lot of our PSA patients are already on therapy. So that might change the characteristics of the back pain that the patient is reporting to. So it might not fit perfectly what we know from that new SPA patient that's presenting. Um, and then finally, areas of, of spinal involvement may be slightly different in PSA. In general, we still say go for the sacroiliac joints. That's where the most of the money is. However, in PSA, there is sometimes more cervical involvement. Um, at least that's been part of the story in a few studies, that there is some cervical involvement even without um, sacroiliac joint x-rays. And I, I can think of one patient where I thought, this is so weird, I, he must have sacroiliac joint Um, abnormalities because he had such bad cervical disease. And it turns out he just didn't. So um, I think that we do find that occasionally in um, AXPSA. So when you're imaging, you want to still go for the sacroiliac joint first, or the sacroiliac joints, but then also consider the other areas where there's pain happening, like the thoracic spine or the cervical spine, for example.
1: Yeah, that's really insightful, Dr. Ogdi. Well, why don't we consider the clinical presentation aspects a little bit more broadly then? And there seems to be a relationship between axial disease and overall disease severity. Is that true?
0: That is true, at least in a few studies we've seen. So again, there's not great studies for axial PSA, and again, and again, they're also defined very differently. But in some of the studies where patients had axial PSA, they that was found to be associated with worse disease overall. So worse peripheral involvement, worse skin, worse nails, worse enthesitis, and patient-reported outcomes. Um, and that may be for a variety of reasons. Maybe they have had the disease longer, maybe it's been untreated longer. I don't. We don't really know. But Either way, that has been identified in studies. Um, so again, just important to identify these patients and make sure that they're being treated. Um, it's also possible that there's other there, there may be increased comorbidities, and I guess that's something we're still learning about too. We don't have a lot of long-term data for axial PSA, and again, they're all defined differently. So different studies are finding different things. Um, but we really need these long, uh, longitudinal cohort studies, and, and they're in progress. But it's going to be some time before we know a lot about the kind of overall prognosis
1: um, over a period of time. Well, for those just joining us, this is ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Matt Bernholz. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Alexis Ogdi about the finer details of axial psoriatic arthritis. So, Dr. Ogdi, why don't we focus on the diagnostic tools and assessments that are useful to identifying this disease? And first. What are some imaging features that help differentiate the spondyloarthropathies?
0: Well, first, let's think about how you work it up. So if you have a patient you're sitting in front of with psoriatic arthritis and they have back pain, the first thing you're going to do is order a sacroiliac joint x-ray. Now, if the sacroiliac joint x-ray is abnormal, you then go on to get an MRI of the pelvis. So one, one kind of key point here is that a lot of our patients will not have x-ray features, so you want to make sure you're looking at an MRI. Also, just a couple caveats when you're looking at the MRI. Um, you want to make sure if, if they're on therapy, so they're on a therapy that's treating sacroiliitis, you just might not see it. So maybe that's not the time to get it. So what are some of the x-ray features? So they're going to be the typical x-ray features for ankylosing spondylitis. Things like sclerosis on both sides, um, erosions, new bone formation. So complete. Uh, ankylosis of the sacroiliac joints is not that common in PSA, or at least not as common as an ankylosing spondylitis. So that's one differentiating factor. Um, Additionally, the the syndesmophytes may look a little bit different. Um, So there's been, again, just few studies, but those studies have suggested that the syndesmophytes in axial PSA may be a little chunkier, maybe more likely to be non-marginal than typical ankylosing spondylitis, um, syndesmophytes.
1: And what about the MRI features? It sounds like there are some distinguishing aspects that we should know about for those of us with discerning minds in this space.
0: Great, yeah. So when you're looking at an MRI of the pelvis, for example, you're gonna look at the same features you'd be looking for in axial spondyloarthritis. So these two key features are bone marrow edema and bone erosions. So you'll see these on no contrast, but on a T1 and then the STIR images or fat suppressed images. Um, if you just to get got MRIs of the pelvis for patients with inflammatory back pain and psoriatic arthritis, about 45% of them would have an abnormal MRI. Uh, the same Things that we think about with axial arthritis and MRI of the pelvis still um, exist in XPSA. So consider whether the patient is postpartum, they may have uh, an abnormal or they'll have bone marrow edema, for example, up to even 12 months after the baby was born. Um additionally, uh, marathon runners and hockey players have been found to have um, some bone marrow edema there without erosions. So erosions are pretty specific for an actual problem that's going on that's related to inflammatory disease, but bone marrow edema can be caused from other issues like sports. So um, maybe it's good if you just have bone marrow edema, it's good to get a sense of what the patient was doing or whether that they ran a marathon before their MRI.
1: And is there any overlap or confusion with other pathologies such as diffuse idiopathic skeletal hyperostosis or DISH?
0: DISH is always confusing in psoriatic arthritis. Um, It's not an infrequent finding either. And one of the things to caution with all of these imaging features is that the average radiologist is not trained to look at these things. So you really have to look at this yourself. Um, Differentiating DISH from XPSA is very difficult. Um, and, and sometimes if you, if you have that classic candle wax uh, um, flowing osteophytes, that's going to be very you know DISH. So um, if it's more of the thin syndesmophytes, it's going to be much more X-spot. But sometimes it's really difficult to differentiate the two, and they could possibly even coexist. So getting a look yourself will help. Um, and that's important because you want to know what to expect from treatment. Um, DISH is not going to respond to our therapies in the way that, uh, that axial spinal arthritis or axial PSA will.
1: And Dr. Ravi, if we turn to the subject of assessment tools, have any assessment tools proven helpful in assessing axial involvement in PSA?
0: So this is an area that still really needs development. Um, currently, in axial PSA, we're using the same tools from axial spinal arthritis to measure a response to therapy, for example, or even to define that that is present. So the most common tools in AXSPA to look for response to therapy are the BASDI, which is a six-item patient-reported outcome measure, and the ASTAS, which is a combination of some items from the BASDI as well as a C-reactive protein. And then other th- things are used as well, such as the ASAS criteria and um, BASFI. So let's talk about the BASDI first. So the BASDI is a six-item questionnaire. Only one of those is actually specific to spine disease. Question number two asks about this, about spine pain. The other items are related to things like fatigue, peripheral joint pain, and stiffness, for example. Um, So if you think about it, that doesn't differentiate well from someone who has just peripheral arthritis compared to axial PSA. And that's what we see in the studies as well, is that when you use BASDAI and PSA, it works great, but it doesn't differentiate well between response from the peripheral arthritis and response from axial disease. So we still need better measures there. Um, ASDAS, the CRP is uh, also... Elevated in about um, 50% of patients with uh, axial, uh, axial PSA, XPA, or PSA. So, either way, the CRP isn't really differentiating either. Um, so, while these measures may suggest that the patient is responding well in the subpopulation, it's not necessarily specific to them responding well in the axial component. So, um, now the only way we really know how to do that is through imaging. So, this is going to really enhance. Um, and uh, elevate the importance of imaging in as a biomarker for response to therapy and as well as defining PSA. Now, other um, things that we can think about in terms of monitoring spine uh, or axial disease in PSA are just things like a simple spine VAS pain questionnaire. So for example, over the past seven days, how's your spine pain been on a scale from zero to 10? So that's commonly used in trials as well as in clinical practice. And then the global uh, assessment of disease activity overall, obviously you want the patient to overall feel better. So those are easy things to follow in clinical practice.
1: It sounds like we should at least acknowledge that in the absence of more objective biomarkers, all of these assessment tests are going to be... Uh, a little bit reliant or entirely reliant on subjective measures and patient reported measures. Can you speak to that challenge a little bit and and how you try to work through that?
0: Exactly. So I think that that is the, the work ahead is to figure out what we can do to figure out how to separate out the back pain from the rest of what's going on. And I think in the absence of any biomarkers, as you said, there really are no biomarkers for disease activity or response to therapy or even diagnosis in um, psoriatic arthritis, axial psoriatic arthritis, or axial spinal arthritis. So we're, we're kind of like, hands tied, we our back from a biomarker perspective right now. However, imaging does help. So I think this is gonna be increasingly used in defining axial PSA, but also defining response to therapy in axial PSA. So this is an area of ongoing investigation right now.
1: Well, clearly Dr. Adi, based on everything you shared with us up to this point, It's safe to say that there are ongoing challenges here in this path toward defining axial PSA, uh, given the variance and differential overlap in clinical presentations, the radiographic findings, um, the assessment tool discriminations that you just spoke to. But if we take all of that in mind, what do you think is going to move us in the right direction for defining and differentiating this disease?
0: So right now, there's an ongoing um, set of prospective uh, longitudinal cohort studies, and so we'll hopefully learn more about that. And additionally, uh, the ASAS group, as well as GRAPA, the Group for Research and Assessment of Psoriasis and Psoriatic Arthritis, are developing together criteria to define axial PSA. That will likely involve some sort of imaging. And then also, they're going to work on outcome measures. So how do we define um, response to therapy in axial PSA? So this is a really important adventure that they're, uh, in, that they're at least halfway through now. And hopefully, we'll be hearing some outcomes from that uh, process within
1: the next one to two years. And I understand as far as the grappa group goes, you yourself are part of that. Any reflections or takeaways to impart to our audience before we close?
0: Yeah, I think Grappa is really interested in figuring this piece out and has been interested in this for a really long time. And I think it's exciting that we're now kind of at a point where we're getting close to that those recommendations and really have buy-in from another organization that studies axial spinal arthritis. So I'm really excited about what we'll be seeing in the next couple of years in this domain of axial PSA.
1: Well, I think that's an excellent forward-looking outlook on the diagnostic and therapeutic potential and these co- continuing collaborations that we're seeing as defined by some of the groups of which you yourself are part of. And I think that's a very fitting way to close out our program today. With that in mind, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Agdi, for helping us better understand the path toward a clearer definition for PSA. Dr. Agdi, great to have you on the program. Thanks so much.
0: Thanks so much for having me. This program was sponsored by Novartis Medical Affairs. If you missed any part of this discussion, visit reachmd.com industry dash feature. This is ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.